0: You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective, Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers. It's good to be back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I have on the Zoom call Michael Connell. He wrote a book recently, A Brotherhood Betrayed, The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder Incorporated. Now, we all know about Murder Incorporated. We know it uh, has something to do with Albert Anastasia and Lepke Buchhalter and Abe Kid Twist Reyless, uh, who is the least known of these characters. And, and we're going to learn a lot more about uh, Abe Relis and Kid, or Kid Twist, I guess uh, he was known by, uh, as we interview Mr. Cannell. Welcome, Michael. It's great to have you here.
1: Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you, Gary.
0: Now, Michael, as I was researching your book here a little bit, I see uh, you got paid a heck of a compliment by Judith Reveal. She says Canell's telling of this story is page turning. His research is unquestionable. His descriptions chilly. and his character development is absolutely visual. So that's uh, a <laughs> that's a heck of a compliment, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I really, I really appreciate that. Of course, that's what I was that's what I was going for uh, as as I wrote this. Um, You know, I really tried to write it the way a novelist would write a great novel or the way a movie director would make a movie. Uh, It's all true. It's history. It's journalism. Everything in this book is true. But I've tried to shape it the way the way a novelist would shape a novel or the way um, somebody making a Netflix series would would. Shape that. So, so I'm gratified to hear that quote because that's that's exactly what I was going going for.
0: Yeah, folks. Let me give you just a little example here. Here he is describing Arnold Rothstein. Most people are familiar with Arnold Rothstein, uh, and I quote here from the book: He was a tall figure, silky smooth, with the cultivated pallor of a vampire. He gambled all night and slept all day. I mean, you can just you can visualize Arnold Rothstein from that. There's no doubt about it.
1: Well, this this book mostly takes place in the 1930s, starts in the 20s, and then into the 30s, right up to 1941. Of course, that's a really colorful and wonderful backdrop to have for a book. So I did try to make it as colorful and cinematic as as possible Uh, you know brooklyn in the 1930s is just an it's just an incredible backdrop for a story and
0: i really did try to bring all of that to life kind of of the modern day damon runyon huh (laughs) yeah so michael tell me a little bit about or tell the listeners out here a little bit about your your credentials shall we say and how did you get to this point of writing this book and
1: Well, I'm a newspaper guy. I worked at newspapers and magazines my whole life. I used to work at the New York Times. I left the New York Times about nine years ago to write a book about car racing the true story of two men who were on the Ferrari race team in the late 50s. That book is called The Limit. And then I wrote a book called Incendiary, which is about the first case of criminal profiling, the first time that uh, the police went to a psychiatrist to solve a crime. And, and now this book, A Brotherhood Betrayed. So I'm a nonfiction writer. All these books are all true. But as I said earlier, I'm trying to write them in a, in a, in a, in a style that is known as narrative nonfiction. For those people out there who may know the great books of Eric Larson, Devil in the White City, and Laura Hillenbrand, who wrote *Seabiscuit* um, and, and *Unbroken*, I'm trying to I'm trying to write books the way they write them—true books, history, but written as if as if they are movies.
0: Really, and and I appreciate that. I remember when I was uh, I was researching this book I did about the. Uh, uh, Kansas City end of the casino skimming investigation. So Nicholas Pellegrin, of course, wrote the definitive book on casino and the movie, the screenplay. And so I was looking at his and 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 he didn't quite get to where you got. I didn't think, but he was he he did that sort of thing. He it, it really he would explain the what the dry facts would be, then he'd follow it up with dialogue from characters, which it was it really made it a lot more entertaining.
1: Well, of course, Nick Pellegrin is one of the great figures in this in this. Uh, uh, in this business, and um, I would not presume to compare myself to him, but but I think he and I are maybe have been trying to to do the same thing, which is to write um, to write books about true crime and mafia history in a way that is cinematic and um, and riveting.
0: Yeah, interest. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna read this even closer and study it because I have another book that I'm thinking about writing about something that's not even mob and I I can't quite get the courage up to do it. But oh, know, I hope you do it. I hope you do it. I, 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 I'm gonna definitely pony off of what you've done and, and already have a little bit off of what Pledgey's done. Uh, it's not easy, folks. I want to tell you something. Uh, good writing is hard. They taught us that in law school when they first started legal writing. They said, "I want to tell you guys something. Good writing is hard." <laughs> so, it is hard. We, we, Michael, we had a guy who he was a bright guy, and after the first semester, he dropped out. And I happened to run into him. He said, "You know," he said that legal writing. He said, "It's crazy." He said, "I always thought." That if you just wrote a lot, that's good writing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of the opposite, actually. From, you know, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: it's about writing less and not more. Let's start in on uh, well, what's this book about, I guess. Tell the folks what this book's about. A little bit about that, your main character here.
1: Well, Gary, I guess I would put it this way during Prohibition, the mobs in New York, Chicago, out where you are around the country, they made so much money without hardly trying. During prohibition, they controlled the flow of illegal alcohol, bootlegging moonshine. They controlled the speakeasies. They controlled the gambling. They controlled the prostitution. And the money came in by the boatload. I mean, just mountains of money. And they lived large. Uh, They went to nightclubs. They were surrounded by chorus girls. But when Prohibition wound down, the mob had to figure out a different way of operating. And that was the point when organized crime really had to get organized. And the top mob bosses put together a nationwide coast-to-coast affiliate of mobs, a kind of confederacy of mobs. Lucky Luciano, in particular, wanted to run the mob like General Motors or like McDonald's with franchises in every city. He wanted to run it like a profitable business. And part of that business meant putting together an assassination squad that would kill anybody who was an informant, or potentially an informant. The theory was that if there was nobody to testify against them in court, then there wouldn't be any prosecutions. And that, that the, uh, to, 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 to perform these assassinations, the top mob bosses called upon a Jewish gang, actually Jewish-Italian mixed gang, in Brooklyn, in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn, headed by a man named Abe Reles, his name was Kid Twist. And uh, for a decade, this system worked. Abe Reles dispatched his men all across the country. They killed hundreds of informants, hundreds and hundreds, by one count as many as a thousand, although I find that figure a little hard to believe. And this, this worked. It worked for a decade until Abe Reles himself became an informant. And in fact, the man who had spent his adult life killing informants became the biggest informant of all. And then the question was, could the government keep him alive long enough to testify in court? And the, he testified against Four of his closest friends, they all four, went to the electric chair. The district attorney in the, in Brooklyn was about to start prosecuting the big bosses when Abe Relles went out the window of his hotel in Coney Island and died. And then the question was, did he go out that window voluntarily or was he thrown out the window? Did somebody kill him? And if somebody did kill him, who was it? Was it the mob? Was it the police? There are reasons to believe that the city, New York City officials may have either sanctioned Abe murder or may have participated in it in some some way. We don't know the answer to those questions and um Abarella's death remains one of the really enduring mysteries of mob history.
0: interesting now, now Michael, how did that work? Uh, I noticed Albert Anastasia's stages. Name is always connected to Murder Incorporated. Did that Was that like kind of a, a pass down? Uh, I'm trying to think of the way a, a company would work. You mentioned they organize it like General Motors. You have a chain of command, a uh, table of organization. So so Albert, Albert Anastasia is, uh, during this time, I believe he might have been an underboss. I don't, he might have been the boss after they killed off the uh, Magano, I think was uh, was his old boss's name. But then he would get the order from maybe the commission commission, then he would give it to Anastasia, then he would turn around and get hold of uh, Rellis or, or uh, this Lepke book was involved with this in some manner. How, how did that work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- the way it would work is that if, if, the, the, mob, uh, if the mob in, in Detroit or, or Miami had determined that one of their members had to go, then they would contact the commission as this nationwide organization would call, would be called. And then pro- either Lepke Bookalter or Albert Anastasia would place the phone call to Abe Reles, And so that was, that was the chain of command. Abe Reles, if you were think, thinking of it in really corporate terms, Abe Relles reported to those two men. Albert Anastasia was the big boss of Brooklyn and Lepke Bookalter was the liaison to the, to the, to the big bosses in the commission. Abrellas used, used as his headquarters, a candy store in Brownsville, Brooklyn, that was tucked on a street corner, kind of tucked underneath the elevated subway. It was an all night candy store more like what we would think of as being like a coffee shop, really. And he and his guys would sit in, the, in a booth in the back where there were pay phones. And they would sit back there and smoke cigarettes and um, play cards. And they would wait for that phone to ring. And when the phone rang, it was the call coming in from Albert Anastasia or Lepke Buchalter with orders to kill somebody in St. Louis or Los Angeles or miami
0: well, see I, I thought this was all going to be new york based I didn't really realize that uh, that they went around the country and killed people for other uh, other crime families interesting what would be uh, what would be one of their more famous murders uh, Of course, uh, Dutch Schultz, I believe they were responsible for that and, and did that one, which was was a big one was there uh, was there others that were, were big ones that maybe people don't know about?
1: Well, there was a there was a gangster in Detroit named Milman. And um I don't recall his first name off offhand. And he he was a gangster that kind of he was a Jewish gangster that went kind of went rogue. And um every kind of everybody in, in Detroit, I think, knew that he was gonna die. It was just it was just a question of when. And um sure enough, one night he came out of a nightclub and he um got his car, a brand new car from valet parking. And when the valet parking attendant went to pick up the car, the car exploded. So the, the valet, the attendant was killed instead of instead of Millman. But they eventually did get they eventually did get Milman. And these murders took place like I say in in cities all across the country. And the the murder inc Um, assassins really treated it like a business. I mean, it's almost comical how much they resembled middle management at an insurance company. They would pack an overnight bag uh, with a clean change of clothes. Um, Of course, their bag would contain a gun and a rope and an ice pick. They like to use ice picks to stab people. They would go to the airport and they would fly into... Um, Chicago or Sacramento, and um, they would be met by the local affiliate, mob affiliates there. They would do their job and then get on the plane and fly back to New York. Usually they didn't even know the name of the person that they were killing, and they didn't know what that person had done to deserve their fate. They wouldn't find out until they read the newspaper um, the next day.
0: Well, what what a way to insulate the local boss of the local people who had maybe a motive to have this person killed. What a way to insulate uh, that that boss and his all his people, all his uh, guys. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit, Al Capone did this for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. He had this uh, group of guys from St. Louis uh, who were Irish, mainly called them Egan's Rats, I believe was their gang name, a guy named Fred Killer Burke, and, and uh, he imported them up to do that St. Valentine's Day Massacre and other murders up there. What are, These guys are smart, man. They were really smart.
1: They were really smart, and the local bosses would make sure to have an ironclad alibi at the time that the killings occurred. Um, In some cases, they would be at their daughter's ballet recital or or at a kid's birthday party. They were very careful not, you know, to not to be involved. And it was all done clean in, in this kind of clean and efficient, clean and efficient way. By the time the police were rounding up suspects, the murdering assassin was on his way back to New York.
0: Wow, that's that's really interesting. these the the Jewish gangster kind of phenomenon every. Major family, and we had a small contingency in Kansas City, but every major family has this small Jewish contingence that they bring in. Cleveland brought them in pretty far. Uh, Milton Rockman during uh, the seventies could have been considered uh, the boss almost uh, for a period of time, and, and Chicago had a quite a few Jewish people in there, and and uh, all of them have. I, what do you how do you explain that? How how did that work? I mean, they're both kind of from these ghettos if we if you will from these cultural enclaves that were really tight and and together and they grew up, you know, in neighborhoods next to each other. At least that's what happened in Kansas City, so they would have known each other about each other since they were little kids. Kind of how did that work?
1: Yeah, I think it happened just exactly the way you said it. Uh what happened is that those that older generation of mafia, um, the old guys who came from Sicily and Naples, and by the way, for the most part, they did not come because they wanted to be American. They were fleeing prosecution in Italy. And they came to America and they had very little interest in assimilating into American culture. They stayed Sicilian when they were in America. And, or or they they, they perpetuated the, the language and the customs of their home village right there in lower Manhattan. Um, They had no interest, the Neapolitans had no interest in working with the Sicilians and the Sicilians had no interest in working with the Neapolitans. And it was very clear in what we now call Little Italy in lower Manhattan, it was very clear where the Neapolitans lived and where the Sicilians lived. There was a dividing line, and they were very segregated. They were very much about vendettas and grievances. They had no interest in working with Jewish gangsters, Irish gangsters, Black gangsters. But when the next generation came along, the generation of Bugsy Siegel and Lucky Luciano, that changed entirely because, as you said, those Jewish and Italian gangsters They grew up in the exact same neighborhoods. They played on the streets together. They went to the same schools. They dated each other's sisters. They grew up like brothers. And so, I mean, this was a real shift. Now Italians and Jews wanted to work together. And part of it was that they, at this point now, after Prohibition, they wanted to make money. They wanted the mafia, the mob, organized crime to be about profit, not about petty ethnic grievances. And so, Lucky, there's a quote from Lucky Luciano in which, to paraphrase him, he said, the dollar bill does not know and does not know if you're Jewish or you're black or you're Italian. When Kid Twist, Abe Reles, came along in Brownsville, Brooklyn, he was trying to be the big guy in his neighborhood. And in order to do that, he had to overthrow the, the three brothers, the Shapiro brothers, who were the, the, top of, the top dogs in his neighborhood. He didn't have the muscle to do it. So he went to the neighboring Italian neighborhoods and recruited some, some Italian guys that he knew. And he formed a kind of muscled up gang that he called the Combination. He called it the combination because it was Jews and Italians working together. And with the help of the Italian gangsters, he was able to overthrow the Shapiro brothers.
0: Uh, that's a good explanation of that uh, something I, I'm not really I mean I kind of know it in my head but I've never really heard uh, that, yeah. that that explanation uh, exactly the way you put it that's really well put and it, it really is understandable and that that was replicated in every city where there was a La Cosa Nostra mafia family in, throughout the whole United States and the significant Jewish population which you know they all came here about the same time they were all fleeing whatever you know fleeing prosecution fleeing uh, a program. In, in Russia or, or uh, Eastern Europe and, and uh, looking for a, a way into the American economy, you know, looking uh, yeah, for a way up. up.
1: That's true. They were all coming. I mean, the Italians and Jews were kind of coming here at roughly the same time. And from, you know, as, as you say, from Italy and Eastern Europe. And if you think about it, the mob was sort of the, was sort of the original melting pot at that, at that time. You know this way in which Abe Reles recruited um, his Italian friends to work with him was an example of what we would now call the melting pot. They were all after the same thing. They were after American prosperity, the American dream, and they they were willing to erase the ethnic barriers in order in order to
0: to, to reach the American dream. So something happened here with uh, uh, Tom Dewey, of course, went on a rampage. And and he saw his uh, his actually he saw his route to the presidency, I think, via prosecuting these organized crime people. And uh, uh, and it really went after him. And hence the uh, uh, prosecution of Dutch Schultz, which he thought was was unfair, and and of course, uh, you know, the uh, Murder Incorporated had to take Dutch Schultz out because he wanted to kill Tom Dewey. But then, uh, you know, cont- there's another guy after that named O'Dwyer, I believe, that that came along and was the next prosecutor. And was that in Brooklyn or? Uh...
1: Yeah, William O'Dwyer was an extremely interesting man. He was an Irish immigrant. Classic immigrant story, he got off the boat from Ireland with $12 in his pocket and um, made his way uh, doing odd jobs, went to college, went to law school at night, became a lawyer, a lawyer in a little law practice out by Coney Island that had some ties to the mob, ironically. He became a judge and then he eventually became district attorney of the borough of Brooklyn. And that was a moment when Brooklyn was seized by a sense of crisis. Um, The mob had really come to just completely control uh, Brooklyn or New York. Um, by, now, by now, Tom Dewey had gone on to other things, running for governor, running for president. He ran unsuccessfully for president, but he did become governor of New York State. So while Dewey is gone, while Dewey's in Albany, it falls to William O'Dwyer to try to bust the mob in Brooklyn, remember that the mob during this period had made so much money that they were easily able to protect themselves by paying off not just the patrolman on the beat, but also the patrolman's boss and his boss and his boss. They were paying off judges, district attorneys, all sorts of figures in the city government. And so, people assumed that this would be, this would go on forever. How could you possibly root out the mob when they had so much power and and influence? But William O'Dwyer set about to do this. And um, uh, it, it was really um, the breaking point uh, when he put Abe Rella's kid twist in jail and he hauled him in on murder charges along with some of his associates. And O'Dwyer did something very smart. He put them in separate jails in New York so that they couldn't communicate with each other. And they, each each man became a little paranoid and was afraid that his friends might be ratting him out. Each of them became afraid that the other ones were talking. And nobody was was like musical chairs. Nobody wanted to be the one left
0: without a chair when the music stopped. I'm laughing because I've done that. <laughs> Every policeman that's worth his salt has done that. You separate them, and then you take one in, you talk to him for a little bit, and maybe you let the other one see that you're talking to this guy and chumming up with him, and then you put him back in another cell. You get the other guy out. I've been there. That's a classic.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it is classic, right? <laughs> yeah. But it and yeah. It's sort of like playing mind games with mm-hmm. them and making the paranoid. At the same time, Abe Rellas was convinced that he was dying anyway. He had developed this, um, bloody cough. He was spitting up blood, coughing up blood, and it became his daily habit to fill up a, a glass in his jail cell with, he would just fill it up with kind of blood that he spat up every day. And he was convinced that he had cancer. And in fact, he didn't have cancer, um, In fact, he was perfectly okay, but he didn't know that. And so that also factored into his thinking. He figured that if William O'Dwyer didn't send him to the electric chair, that he would die of cancer anyway. And so his concern was to take care of his family. And so he made a deal with William O'Dwyer. And he agreed to tell O'Dwyer everything, in return for some form of immunity and some protection for his family. Of course, this was before the Witness Protection Program existed. But basically, he was negotiating for a form of the Witness Protection Program. And so that's how he came to become an informant. The man who had devoted his adult life to killing informants became the biggest informant
0: of all. Really, really—that's uh, <laughs> how ironic, I guess. I think that's the word. Um, one last question. Now, let's talk just a little bit about the, the the demise, the death of of Kid Twist at that in that hotel room. Now, I've seen the pictures online. I can't remember where one of these mob Facebook pages, probably, and it's, can't get them from newspapers where there was a, a bunch of sheets. Tied together and thrown out the window, that he tied onto the radiator, and the assumption was he was going down those sheets. He lost control and slipped off and fell to the rooftop of another building, but far enough to kill him. Is that? Uh, uh, I mean, was that uh, was that crime scene? Was that was that accurate? His
1: body was found outside of his sixth floor window. He had fallen onto the gravel roof of a kitchen annex that stuck out. From the, from the hotel, um, he was found with these, these bedsheets that you're describing that were tied together. It was believed that he may have tied those bedsheets to the radiator in his bedroom and gone out the window. Now those two bedsheets
0: would not have gotten him anywhere near the ground. That was my question. How, where would he have gone from them?
1: There is speculation that he was going to the window underneath his, own, uh. underneath his own bedroom. And in fact, there are some scuff marks on his shoes. There are scuff marks on the windowsill of that window. Um, the screen and window of that room was, you know, dislodged, kind of jimmied a little bit. Okay. So it's possible, I mean, one theory is that he was trying to go into that window to play a trick on the guards. So he was in this suite of rooms on the sixth floor with some other informants. They were under heavy guard. Um, The police had built a steel barrier to seal this suite off from the elevator, and Abe Reles was a, was a prankster in a kind of mean-spirited way, and he loved to play kind of mean jokes on the guards. So one of the several theories about his death is that he was just trying to go out the window just to come back in the window below his own and then come upstairs to surprise the guards as if to say, "You you know you fools, you can't protect me or keep yeah. me. From doing what I want. Look, I easily escaped from from my room. It's also possible that he was thrown out the window, and that those bed sheets were thrown out after him, simply to make it look as if he was trying to escape.
0: Right. He was in the room alone. In this room alone. Correct.
1: He was in the room
0: alone. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And and there was policemen outside the door at the time.
1: Where the police were outside the door and down down the hallway, Okay, you know, they were supposed to check on these, on Abrellas and the other informants every 15 minutes or so yeah. throughout the night. But of course the police were, I think more often than not, the police were
0: sound asleep. More than likely overnight, they'd be up there what One might, if there was more than one, one might be a detail to stay awake while the other slept and then they'd trade off. Been there, done that.
1: <laughs> I mean, one of the real, really puzzling things about this, is that Abe Rellis' body was found some distance from his window. I can't recall the exact distance, um, 15 feet or 20 feet out from the the wall of the, you know, the, the exterior of the hotel. If he were to have simply fallen out the window while he was trying to get in the window below his own, he would not, have fallen that far out the distance from the building suggests that that he was thrown out that there was a kind of trajectory from huh. the window the official conclusion from the police was that he was trying to escape but i don't think anybody really believes that he was trying to escape among other things if he had escaped i mean escaping was the last thing that he wanted right where would he go where would he go? And he did not. He really did not want to be out there in the city, with with uh, Albert Anastasia and Bugsy Siegel and others looking for
0: him. Yeah, I, I, I tell you the truth, Michael. I kind of like the theory that he wanted to play a joke on his guards and and go in through that other apartment and then come back upstairs and say, "Hey, look at me." <laughs> that, that, that would be my theory from what you've seen. Now I don't have the evidence, in the fact his body was—I didn't realize that was far enough away that. Uh, you know, to have the trajectory, as you called it, to get that far out, really makes sense that somebody gave him a toss. So, you know, I guess it'll always be one of the great unsolved mysteries of the United States.
1: It, it is, it is a mystery, and um, you know, uh, there's there's a there is some suspicion about the forensics in in this case. If the police were involved in his death. Do we even trust the forensics? Right.
0: Yeah. Really. Like the knots, and you know, would those knots have held a person and all that? They, I'm sure they. Somebody got a picture of it. They probably pulled that in and and controlled it and and you know, stuck in a bag and took it off someplace right away.
1: Well, in fact, they sent the they sent the sheets to the FBI. Oh, did they? For them to do an analysis in their forensics lab, and their their conclusion was that the. The sheets were not strong enough to hold hold anybody. Right, interesting, so, interesting.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Be one of the great unsolved mysteries, you know. Uh, Michael, this has been great. We're uh, kind of up here about 30 35 minutes, and and uh, folks, you need to get out and get this book, "A Brotherhood Betrayed: The Man Behind the Rise and Fall of Murder Incorporated" by Michael Cannell. Uh, it's really the story of Abe Kid Twist Relis. Uh, Michael, it's a uh, been a pleasure having you here and uh we will get this up in a little bit and i'll I'll let you know when i put it up Gary, i really enjoy i really enjoyed being
1: here with you and um thank you so much for having me okay
0: all right thank you well folks thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the apple podcast reviews plus your nice comments on my youtube channel where i often put up the uh, at least the zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Uh, also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I uh, I uh see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content, so if you want more mob information than you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot in a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and and each uh, podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is. And at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the K.C. mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film, plus some... Uh, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99 or $2.99 if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and linked them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation and then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about Gangland Wire. You guys all know I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening and... uh Listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.